I have a good sense of uh, how we all feel in worship. And as I was preparing for our time together on Friday, I knew that this moment would come in our worship service. And just kind of empathize with me right now. I, uh, I, I was sitting in my office Friday, starting to prepare my message, and I said to the Lord, I have absolutely no desire at this point to talk about YOLO, which is the topic before us. So we're in a series called Dangerous Sayings, and we've taken a look at these few dangerous sayings, and we come this week to the dangerous saying, YOLO, you only live once, which I've already wet your whistle. That's technically not true according to the Bible. You live at least twice now and here in eternity. But forget about that for right now because I didn't even want to chat about a dangerous saying today. So I'm going to put that on hold. You've already noticed that from your bulletin. We're going to take a look at that topic next week, unless I decide not to do it next week. And, uh, and we're going to do that. And today, we have about, you know, 25, 30 minutes left. We're going to stick to our time. I want to talk to you about grace. And specifically, I want to talk to you about something that Philip Yancey calls ungrace. Philip Yancey says that we live in a world today that is choking on the fumes of ungrace. And he argues that if you don't understand the ungrace all around you, you're never going to understand the grace that is offered to you. Does that make sense? Because if you didn't realize all the ungrace around you, you'd never see your need for grace in your life. It's ungrace where the discussion begins. And given all that's happened in our church this week, and even all that's going on in culture, as you're going to see, I think it's a good discussion for you and I to have right now this idea of ungrace. Now, Jesus told us a story 2,000 years ago centered on this topic of ungrace. It's a story that, if I don't miss my guess, almost every one of you are familiar with. It's found in Luke chapter 10, and let me get the verses correct, verses 30 through 35. And it's a story that's popularly known as the story of the Good Samaritan. And almost every Christian knows this story, but I don't know if you've ever seen it in light of how Jesus originally intended it, and that is in light of this topic of ungrace. If you're not familiar with the story, here's the very quick Cliff Notes version of it. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jesus says, and he got mugged and left for dead. And a priest and a Levite each separately walked by. And when they saw this man who had been mugged and left for dead, they walked on their side of the road and continued on. And then a Samaritan walks by and sees this man and he puts him on his donkey, binds his wounds, takes him to a local ER and admits him to the hospital there. And then a day later he comes back and he pays for a few more days and says, take care of him and whatever this guy needs, I'm willing to pay for his rehabilitation. That's the story Jesus tells in Luke chapter 10. And folks, as I already said, I believe that the reason Jesus told us this story was to put his finger on this thing called ungrace that exists all over the place then and today, but then also to help usher us into a discussion of ungrace's enemy, this idea or thing called grace. So the first thing I want you to notice about Jesus' story here is that he unmasks the ungrace of culture. He reveals the ungrace of, of culture. But look at how he begins this actual story in the text. He says, a man 
was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away leaving him half dead. This is the ungrace Jesus is revealing of the culture that they lived in back then. To add some richness to this story, notice that Jesus begins by saying a man was traveling, a man. This doesn't mean a man as opposed to a woman. This means a particular man, almost surely in Jesus' story here, it would have been a Jew. Because Jesus was speaking to Jews here, as we're going to see in a minute, and it would be a Jew who would use this popular road between two Jewish cities, Jerusalem and Jericho. And so almost surely the original hearers would have heard that this might be a a Jewish man uh, going down. And he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Here's all you need to know about that. Jerusalem sits high on a hill. Jericho is in the Jordan Valley. There's 17 miles between the two cities, and it's a 3,000-foot descent. So picture yourself walking back from, say, Black Canyon City or Sedona, and you're walking through the open desert, and there's there's rock formations and a a curvy trail. This trail in Jerusalem or in the Holy Land is known to be a dangerous trail where lots of robbers and people would hide out to to prey on unsuspecting travelers. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus says this man fell among robbers. Now, this is very interesting. As soon as Jesus says he fell among robbers, he doesn't describe the robbery. In other words, he doesn't describe the taking of articles from somebody, which is what thievery is. He describes more the abuse of the person being robbed. Isn't that interesting? Because he says they stripped him, they beat him, and they went away leaving him half dead. Almost every Bible expert I've consulted in the commentaries on this passage points this out, gang, that when Jesus says they stripped him, it's referring to the loss of dignity that this abuse victim went through. And then when it says, or Jesus says that they beat him, it refers to the inflicting of pain upon this abuse victim. And then when it says that they left him half dead, Jesus is getting at the fact that nobody cared for this person in that moment. Don't miss this. This is important for the discussion our church is having right now. Jesus is describing here a classic victim of abuse who has lost dignity, who has had pain inflicted upon them, and who nobody seems to care about. There's over 3,000 passages in the Old Testament alone that talks about how God cares about the injustice of the downtrodden in the culture of Israel. And Jesus is putting his finger right on that here and saying that we live in a world of ungrace, and this is the backdrop of the ungrace going on in his culture at that time. And what really adds kind of insult to injury in all of this is that you have to believe that the original audience of Jesus, when they first heard him tell this story, would have had a response like this. Well, Jesus, stuff like this happens all the time. I mean, it's a popular road where people get mugged. I mean, what's your point? And here's my point, guys. Could it be that Jesus' exact point is the response that you and I tend to have to things like that. That we are so immune, we're like fish living in dirty water with all the ungrace around us that when we hear about things like that, unless it happens in our personal family, our response is what? Well, hey, these things happen all the time. And that's Jesus' point. 
is that we're swimming in the water of ungrace. We're breathing in the fumes of ungrace with all the cultures that we live in, so much so that when we hear a story about it, we go, well, what's next? Because that stuff happens all the time. And Jesus says, stop, pause. That's the ungrace of culture that's all around you. At least pause enough to recognize it because it's influenced you more than you know. You know, it doesn't just take really tragic events to realize all the ungrace going on in the culture around us today in 21st century. As I've given a lot of thought to this over the years, I've thought of at least four areas uh, in which you and I experience ungrace, and you be the judge right now, almost every day. I mean, think about your business marketplace realm, the political social realm, sports, and even religion. And I would submit to you that every one of these has vast arenas of ungrace that you and I experience all the time. I mean, just the marketplace setting. I mean, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. It's very competitive. There's not a tremendous amount of grace in it. Obviously, a cursory look at Hollywood or bureaucracies going on or even the private sector reveals that to us. Don't get me wrong. I'm a big believer in the free market and private sector. It's just that I'm pretty convinced there's not a lot of friendly grace going on in there. I think most of us know that. And then consider the political and social realm. I mean, oh my word. I mean, does anybody here want to argue that what's going on right now in our political climate is filled with grace? I mean, I'm not going to comment on that. I'm not here to comment on politics. But, you know, when we got going what, on what's going on in our culture right now, let me just put it this way. I got in trouble in the last service for saying this, so let me try to be even more clear. You know, I don't care if you're a CNN watcher or a Fox News watcher. All I know is that whenever I watch any of the talk shows on any of the channels, I don't walk away going, my, was that a grace-filled conversation we just had. <laughs> And again, I'm not picking on anybody. I'm not saying that some of the talk show hosts don't have grace themselves, but the very conversation is not very grace-filled. And again, I love politics. I love sparring with people over politics. And I'm generally correct in my assessments, mind you, <laughs> which is a gracious thing to say. But, but, but I'm joking. But, but, but the reality is, is that there's not a lot of grace in it. And then you got sports. This is my favorite example. Some of you are going, why are you picking on sports? I love sports. I love professional football. I mean, it just, it just brings something out in me that maybe isn't godly. I don't know. I just love watching it. But, but, but can you imagine like a professional football player, you know, sitting there on the line and looking at the guy across from him on the line and saying, you know what, you're, you're a little bit smaller than me. I think I'll cut you some slack. That would be ridiculous. It doesn't happen in baseball. It doesn't happen in football. It doesn't, it doesn't even happen in Canadian curling. I mean, nobody <laughs> cuts somebody slack in a competitive game about sports. And that's not bad. It's just that there's no grace in that. And then you got religion. <laughs> if you're a follower of the ways of Islam, you must pray five times a day in a certain direction, in a certain way, with a certain prayer without fail. If you're an Orthodox Jew, you need to live mercilessly by the Torah and all of its stipulations and sanctions. And I'm going to speak very candidly in a minute about Christianity and how we have strayed from our founder's emphasis on grace. So I'm not letting us off the hook. But what you need to know is that most of the onlooking world does not see a bounty of grace in today's religious systems. They don't. So you got marketplace, politics, sports, religion. Simply see the first thing Jesus wants us to notice 
in this wonderful story of his is that though we live in a world that's productive in many ways, simultaneously it's, it's like a quad-core Intel computer running on four gigahertz of ungrace. That's the culture that you and I live in. Now, believe it or not, there's another area that Jesus pinpoints of ungrace, and that's the church. He tells us that we're going to find ungrace in the church. Now, somebody's saying, wait a second, where's that in this? Look at how he continues on in his story. He says, and by chance, a priest, focus on that word, was going down on that road. And when he saw him, the man who was beat up, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, focus secondly on that word, also when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. So you got a priest and a Levite passing by this victim of abuse. Now, why is that important? Jesus was of what religion? Anybody here know he was born a Jew? So he's talking to a Jewish crowd here, and notice that the antagonists in this story of his happen to be the leaders of the Jewish religion, Jesus' religion, Jesus' church. If he was telling the story today and trying to make the same point, he'd pick on somebody else. Who is it? Look at me. Me. That's who he'd pick on. He would tell this story today by saying that, you know, a pastor passed by. His name was Jamie and walked on the other side. And then a, an emeritus pastor passed by. His name was Daryl, and, and he walked on the other side. That's who Jesus would use as the antagonist in this story here if he was telling the story today. Jesus is simply trying to show you and me that within our believing religious community, there is a great potential for ungrace. And back then they had a lot of ungrace within their believing religious community. And today there's a lot of ungrace. And you and I have got to recognize that if we're ever going to embrace the enemy of ungrace, which is grace. That's what we say, well, wait a second, where's the ungrace today? Again, it's for a whole other discussion, but let me just suggest to you four areas that we see ungrace in the church today. And that is first, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but, but I think sometimes Christians can be morally superior to the world around them. Is it just me or do you guys notice it too? In other words, we're called to be set apart, righteous, more holy. But listen to me, I've said this to you a thousand times. We are never called to be more holier than thou. We are never called to put our, our, our moral uprightness in the face of a world that couldn't be righteous even if they wanted to outside of Jesus Christ and say, enjoy hell for all of eternity. And yet that's how a lot of Christians posture themselves to the world around them. And here's my simple point. I don't think people find grace in that. I don't think people walk away from that saying, wow, that was a grace-filled conversation. How about legalism? Legalism is simply defined as Christians who live more by rules than they do relationship. Know any Christians like that? And the message we send to an onlooking world is a message of ungrace. I know this one will be real hard, uh, but there are some Christians that once in a while get a little bit judgmental. And when we do so, when we judge before even God has had a chance to judge, it's all about ungrace. And then lack of unity. I love how Mark Twain said it years ago. This is a, 
a great story. He had such a way with words. Mark Twain said that he uh, once put a dog and a cat in a cage together as an experiment to see if they could get along, and they did. And so he put a bird, a pig, and a goat in the same cage, and they too, after a few refinements, got along just fine. He says, then he put a Baptist, a Presbyterian, and a Catholic in the cage, and soon there was not a living thing left. And you know, I find that funny too. I laugh at that every time I read that, and yet I think to myself, that really is the way that the church is many times. I functioned confessedly way too long as a Christian in my early days that way. I was morally superior. I was judgmental. I was one who looked at other Christians and said, well, you don't believe like I do in some of the fineries of the faith, so I'm better than you. And I can just tell you that that just heaped a whole level of ungrace upon those around me. And a huge part of my growing up as a Christian was learning to repent of those things and to start to breed grace in the environments around me. You know, some of you might be thinking, well, Jamie, this isn't turning out to be a very encouraging sermon. I mean, you've been talking negative for about 15 minutes. Well, let's, let's change that right now. Because the whole reason that Jesus wants us to understand the ungrace of culture and the ungrace of the church is so that we can now be primed to embrace more fully the third thing that he spends most of his time talking about in this story, and that is grace. Let's read about his transition to grace right now. He says, but a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, again, the beat up guy on the road, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Notice how all of this is just an absolute exposition and narrative form of grace. He begins by saying a Samaritan. And that's an important phrase. Many of you know this because we've covered it before, but that's an important phrase because the Samaritan was the most unlikely protagonist that Jesus could have chosen here. He would have been better off in that culture to pick a Roman or a Greek than a Samaritan. And by the way, Jews considered Romans and Greeks pagans uh, back then. But a Samaritan was even worse than a Roman or a Greek because Samaritans were kind of seen by Jews as half-breeds. They were ones who came into the picture five, six hundred years earlier when, when the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Persians invaded Israel and they started interbreeding with Israelites and the offspring of some of them were these Samaritans who considered themselves Jewish but didn't have Hebrew blood purely in them. And in the racism of Jesus' day, Samaritans were thought very lowly. So there would have been an audible gasp the second Jesus said, but a Samaritan, after the Levite, after the priest passed by, a Samaritan comes by. And notice with me, this is so rich, what the Samaritan does. Now, don't miss this. The very first thing the Samaritan does is feel, say this word with me, compassion. Say it again louder, compassion. See, that's really rich. <laughs> it would not have been too much of a stretch for this Samaritan to stop 
and look at this guy mugged on the ground and say, what did you do to deserve this? I mean, don't you know that this is a dangerous road? You shouldn't be walking on this road right now. And I don't know, did you start the fight? Did you antagonize the person? I mean, I don't know any details here. What caused you to be in this situation? Isn't that how many people respond today? That we see a victim among us and because we don't know the story and because we want to be objective, we see someone beat up in front of us and what do we do? What did you do to cause this? Why don't you tell me your story so I can get it right? Isn't it fascinating that the very first thing Jesus says this guy did before he had any of the details at all was to feel compassion. Church, what is wrong with us? And last week when I was thinking about what our response should be to these allegations from long ago that are seemingly affecting a few women today in the realm of abuse, and I was thinking, what should our response be? And my immediate thought was, well, maybe we should show compassion and give them a listen to and put victims first. You know what my thought was? I'm just not sure every Christian's gonna like that. I mean, there just might be some in our church that, that don't like that. And I thought, really, is that why I'm gonna make a decision on whether or not people find it popular or not? Or do we make decisions because it's what our Savior would have us do. And as far as I read the word, the Savior says the very first thing we need to feel is compassion. We're not making a judgment on the rightness or wrongness of it. We're not making a judgment on anything. It's just that we feel compassion as God does first and foremost. And then from there, this Samaritan bandaged up some wounds. He used oil and wine, which were medicinal in that culture. He puts him on his own beast or donkey. He brings him to the ER. He takes care of him. And then he takes out his Amex car, that's two denarii, and he gives it to the innkeeper and says, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, you can charge it to my card. The detail there is simply Jesus showing how grace operates that grace first shows compassion, and then secondly, it shows care. And you know, maybe through all of that compassion and care, maybe the Samaritan drew close to the guy and found out that maybe he did contribute something to it. Maybe he did stupidly walk on some road. Maybe he did do something. But isn't it interesting that that's not even a part of the story right now, that the heart of this story is about how Jesus wants to define who our neighbor is and how we should care for our neighbor. And you know, this brings us right now to the mountaintop of what theologians have been wrestling with for literally 2,000 years. And that is, how in the world do we really define grace? I mean, if we were to put it in just a couple of words, what would be a good working definition of what Jesus is getting at here? And here's what theologians have come up with in 2,000 years of theological inquiry, and that is that grace is defined as unmerited favor and undeserved love. That if there's anything that we are offering a cynical, abusive, ungrace world around us, and even people inside the fold, by the way, is we're offering undeserved favor and undeserved love and unmerited favor. That's what we're looking to give. And again, I, I know how too many of you think I've been hanging around you way too long. 
I, I, I've heard all the arguments over the years. And, and you know, people say, are we really, really were to love people unconditionally, Jamie? Really were to show them favor in an unmerited way? You know what the answer to that is? Yeah. But, but there's a really rich reason as to why. You ready for this? And it's because that's how God treats you. Aren't you glad that God didn't say within himself, because he is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Aren't you glad that God didn't say within himself, really, really, Father, I, I gotta treat Scott with this unmerited favor and this unconditional love? Aren't you glad that God as a trinity didn't say that within himself? Now, God says, Romans 5, 8, that while we were yet sinners, he loved us and gave his son for us. While you were still caught in your sin, helpless, unable to do a doggone thing about it, God said, I think I'll take the action, show you grace, and give you Jesus. And even the faith that you have today, which some of you are so proud of, you know, I chose God. Well, read Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, because it actually says that he gave you the grace to be able to have the faith to believe in him. It's a mystery indeed. But from first to last, as I've argued for 37 years of being a Christian, it's all about grace. And here's my simple point. Here's the point of Jesus' story. In a world filled with ungrace, every time you and I dare to show some grace, it's like a neon sign in the middle of a dark street at night showing people where they can get help themselves. That's why the church needs to focus on grace. That's why last week when I was away writing and this terrible news came my way, I really didn't stutter at all about what we need to do. I knew what we needed to do. I just didn't know if we'd have the guts to do it. And that would be to stop and attend and listen to the victims along the side of the road, even if they're victims from 20 to 30 years ago, and then to have compassion and feel it and then to offer some help, which is what we're doing with this investigation, the most fair kind of help we could offer, and that is to honestly look into this. And you know, some have come up to me and said, well, you know, what about others involved in this? And I said, no, the kind of help we're offering is really the kind of help that everybody needs in this, everybody, because we wanna to get to the truth and we wanna provide justice. And we want to do so in a way that truly honors the process. I believe strongly that this is what grace is about and what God would have us do. And I invite you to join me in the journey as members of Scottsdale Bible Church, trusting God. And don't mind being a carrier of his grace. And one last word, we've got a minute left. You know, this week, aside from any abuse going on in our culture, do you realize that statistically speaking, the vast majority of you, if not every one of you, are gonna rub shoulders with somebody desperately in need of grace? It might be a family member, a friend, a coworker, a service provider, a neighbor, but there's a lot of hurting people out there and they need a word from God. And I love how somebody once said it because more, less and less people are reading the Bible. Somebody once said that you might be the only Bible somebody ever reads. You might be the only vehicle of grace. And that's why it's important that we are the Samaritans, the good Samaritans that aren't afraid to stop and listen, show compassion and provide help. In so doing, we show grace. In so doing, 
we introduce them to God. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the courageous and gutsy teaching of Jesus. Lord, he gave this story in response to a lawyer who was asking the question, who is my neighbor? And Father, I pray that as we each consider the question, who is our neighbor? And then realize that anybody in need in culture, and it really includes everybody, is our neighbor and in need of your grace, God. May we not be afraid to live out what Chuck Swindoll years ago called the scandal of grace, love so lavishly giving, given that people would wonder, could it really be true that God would love me like this? God, we pray for our church in the future days that we would continue to take uh, the narrow road and walk through the narrow gate that you would have for us, a gate that has an amazing mixture of grace and truth behind it, not afraid of what we will find as we trust you. God, strengthen us in your grace, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things and we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.